Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. What's good, y'all? This is Breeze Bruin from the Mighty Juggernauts. And make sure you subscribe and download the podcast, Library Rap, the hip-hop interviews with Tim Kell. hip-hop journalism on the highest level. Yeah, what's up? It's your boy, Joel Ortiz, and I want everybody to make sure that they subscribe and download the podcast, Library Rap, the hip-hop interviews with Tim Einenkel. Yo, Tim, I hope all is well. You my guy. I know these interviews are not interviews. They're actually conversations, and I appreciate them all. Yeah. Root of the problem that had been here for years. Seen them before. They bring people to tears. Eradicate the hate. Wait, the premise here. Stake fame. Producer, MC, curator, composer, journalist, historian. My next guest wears many hats. His group, Get Open, has released their latest album, Front and Center. He's Sibajiba, and I want to welcome him to Library Rap Hip Hop Interviews with Tim Heinekel. Uh, thank you so much for being here, man. I really appreciate it. Peace, man. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you. So I want to I want to ask you about your journey, you know, from France to, to the States. But I'm going to weirdly ask you about... Uh, I'm going to start it off by asking you about Get Open's latest album, Front and Center. Um, you know, there's the record on the album, uh, Where I'm From, which is... Also, a title of one of my favorite Jay Z tracks. Uh, you know, same title where I'm from. Mm-hmm. Uh, both tracks are, I think, equally great tracks. Um, and how much, if at all, and maybe there wasn't anything even considering at the time, but how much of at all was maybe an ode to the Jay Z track? And how did you guys come up with this record? And, and why did you decide to kind of do a record where I'm from? Well, that that record actually uh, it's funny you ask about Jay-Z because people in the past have asked that question about the name of the group because he had that song with Uptown Flavor right can I get open Um, so that's been asked in the past no there was no real there was no influence from Jay-Z or even as a title that came about um, really because this this album that we put out uh, we'd been working on it for like four years, I would say. Mm-hmm. Like the first song we did, which Can You Resist, which totally changed when Daddy O came on board. It was a whole other song. Right. Um, we did. We recorded that like in 2018, 2018. So Where I'm From came out later than that. And it was really just a, a song that we wanted to have on the record just to like kind of situate where all the members of the group were from, you know, knowing I'm originally from France, so my whole uh, my whole vision of New York City and my whole, I guess, uh, the way I see things is totally different than 
the two other members who are from the Bronx and from Harlem. Right. Uh, you know, I'm not born here. I came here as very young, but so I have a whole other vision. And the filmmaker, Pascal Tissot, he's actually a filmmaker. He really rarely does videos, but he really likes our work. So he took it upon himself and said, you know what? I want to make this video with you guys. So he, ha he really had the vision as far as the, the visuals, you know, like what he wanted to kind of include and, you know, didn't want to be too cliche because this kind of video and song has been done before. You know, we're aware of that. <laughs> I, mean, I think one lyric uh, that stand out, I'm not going to quote it perfectly, but I think it's you who say, um, you know, a lot of, like you talk about Lottie Dottie and having mm -hmm. a, kind of a big impact on you. And like you joke, I think, I think more in jest, but jokingly saying like you lost your French accent because of it. Right. Um, can you take me back to growing up? Uh, I know you came here when you to the states when you're young. We're growing up in France, and what was it about this particular record that you know Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick, obviously two great storytellers, um, that stood out to you and had that impact on you? Well, I mean that that song because when I when I wrote the, the song, I was thinking about what's the first song that I learned because as kids, right, we learn lyrics from songs, whatever song it is, and then you go back to school and you try to you know, uh, be a sh big shot. And like, I know the song better than you. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it was, that was that kind of thing. But, you know, you got to rewind and think about this is a young kid who's about 12 years, 13, 12, 13 years old. Has been to the States before. Cause my father's from New York. Right. That's mm -hmm. where my connection is. So I've been here before. I've never really lived here, but I've been back and forth, you know, so my, my English is not the best you know, spitting that many words mm -hmm. in a row <laughs> for me was a major challenge. But then, you know, it was the kids on the street that I met in Lower East Side in Manhattan, because that's really where I grew up, that pushed me. And they were, you know, learning themselves. And I remember that being kind of the first battle, you know, in between street kids. Mm -hmm. You know, Lottie Dottie? Yeah, I know it. All right, let's hear it. Go ahead. You know? <laughs> It'd be that kind of dynamic. And that's where, you know, that's where I remember. Rocks, the, the, the real rock, the Roxanne Chante's, the real Roxanne song was probably the first I learned with the Fat Boys. But then I think with, you know, interacting with other kids, Lottie Dottie was the first like street kind of song that everybody wanted to know by heart. And then there was, you know, we were 13, so at the end, there's some couple of lyrics that are a little, you know, for 13 year olds, a little funny. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so uh, that was, I was trying to figure out what does that mean? What does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? And just asking questions. So that's why I say Lottie Dali was the first page, you know, and then it really made me lose my French accent, you know, which I knew I still have in some, when you hear me talk in certain moments after a while, but. It was just the fact that they made fun of me constantly, you know, so rap and learning the raps helped me kind of lose that. So other kids would meet me not like, oh, he's French, you know, funny accent you have. Was this when, I mean, you, you know, you, you, when you come to, New, you come to New York and you, and you kind of, this is kind of the, the, I guess the icebreaker, so to say, but when, when you went back to France, was this, um, what, what was this, I guess, 
you know, the, the state of, I guess, hip hop culture in France at the time in terms of like, could you share this with your friends, you know, or did you really have to keep it to yourself? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I got to France, that was, I mean, I was going back, you know, some summer time and things like that, but nothing really was, had picked up yet. And it was when I went back, I graduated high school. I went to the LaGuardia High School up in New York, the fame school. Right. And then I graduated that and I went back to France. And that's when I discovered hip hop through other friends and it was really just starting. So the rap part, the break dance part had started already for like almost 10 years by then. Uh, and DJing was big, but the rap part was very, 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 uh, I would say, uh, at the dinosaur, you know, mm -hmm. stages. It was very basic and there wasn't that many groups. So it was, to me, it was exciting because you were kind of part of the, the scene as it was just, you know, uh, flourishing. So yeah. that was really cool. And to come and speak perfect English with these French kids who, None, not many could, you know, recite a song. I did feel like a little special, I have to say. You know, like, yeah, I know what he's saying. And kids would come up to me and friends and, Joe, can you tell me what does he mean by that? What did he, what does he say? You know, I don't understand. So it was cool for, to have that. Definitely. Were you, uh, I, it's, you know, um, you know, early cyber still days, uh, you know, DJ Muggs, who was from, you know, from New York, used to mm -hmm. like, you know, fly back and forth from New York to Cali and bring all these like East Coast, you know, hip hop uh, and share with uh, the guys in Cyber Hill. And, you know, that really helped in terms of expanding their music. Was that something similar to what you would be able to do in terms of, you know, getting all the tapes in New York and then flying back to France and like yep. being like... Um, for, sh for sure, man. That was the kind of vibe because they didn't have the tapes you know or we didn't have cds yet we had vinyl but they would have only a certain amount of pieces you know units available and some of them you know depending on the artist they might go fast so yeah the first second third week you would have to you know if you were you know a fan of a specific artist and you lived in paris you would have to like buy the record okay. and that's in paris because then you have all the cities like lyon and marseille which had, you know, a big hip hop scene, but early on they didn't have records, right. record stores. So they have to go to Paris to get the records. So yeah, I did bring a lot of stuff. I remember one specific tape that I brought that like blew everybody's mind was the soundtrack for, for Colors, the Ice nice. T. That's dope. nice. I remember that, like these graffiti writers was like, yo, what the fuck is, you, what the fuck is this? <laughs> yo, what are you playing? I'm like, you never heard of Ice T? He's like, Ice T, who's that? And I remember that, and that just that vibe, you know, for how that song starts with da, 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 that old piano thing, mm -hmm. kind of like you know, suspenseful, and then you know, then I see colors, colors, colors. They were like, "Oh shit, this is crazy right here." I remember this like that moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was reading an interview with you, and you, you talked about how you kind of discovered hip hop uh, with your mother. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm just imagining, like, and you talked about Slick Rick earlier, and I remember, like, one of the first tapes I knew front to back and back to front was obviously uh, Slick Rick's debut album, The Great Adventures of Slick Rick, right? Um, and then I think of the first song on that album, which is Treated Like a Prostitute. Right. And I can't imagine <laughs> saying that loud, loud anyway, as like an 11 or 12 year old, but also sharing that, you know, that experience with my mother. Can you kind of talk about, 
uh, I mean, discovering hip hop with your mother and how how important how important that was to you to be able to discover it with her. Well, I mean, you know, just to, to give it a bit a bit of just a you know a setting, uh, she she was a photographer for I guess fifty years, traveled the world, but mainly three poles were Rio, Paris, New York. So she's always into like uh, music heavy from blues to jazz and then to some soul records but then she jumped to the last poets she was big on that mm. and uh when she when she heard hip-hop she was like wow this is the continuation of the last poet she was never big on gil scott heron mm-hmm. she recognized his work but she wasn't a big fan of his work she was more of a fan of the last poets that was really her shit like we have those records, and and she, I, we actually went to see them various times live. I was five years old when we saw them in, I think, in '76 in Paris. They played, wow. and uh, she brought them to her school because she taught at a university, and, she, and the whole hip hop thing really is because she developed a method of teaching English using hip hop as a tool, but using African American culture with as a tool to teach these young people of different uh, backgrounds in France, specifically Paris, specifically in, uh, you know, in this university at very diverse. So she used the, the, the hip hop for the story, but also for the rhythm of the language and to teach these kids, you know, use English, you know, use this, as you call it, weapon mm-hmm. to teach these kids and interest them. And the whole rapping thing kind of became like, I was a fan, but I started like transcribing lyrics for her, for her classes. So, you know, to make a long story short, she, when she heard the message in 81, mm-hmm. it was a total like, oh, what is this? And then the video, I remember it was a CBS. It might've been Cronkite still at the time. This is a new, a new form of music. No, 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 no. <laughs> young kids from the South Bronx. No, 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 no. I remember that clearly. And that was just the apocalypse. Like, wow, what is this? Oh my God, who are these kids? What? So she did all her research. And then we were in France and then the first hip hop show came. It was called the New York City Fresh Fest, you know, with Fab Five Freddy leading, Ramble Z rapping, you had Bambata, DST on the wheels, you had Dondi and Futura 2000 painting with Lee live, you know, on like wooden panels. You'd had Rocksteady crew, breakdancing, and all this was happening simultaneously on the stage. Right. If you can imagine this, then, because, right. see, what's funny is that in the U.S., this didn't really happen like that. You know, we had, so you'd go to the playground or you go to the block party, you would have the breakdancers and the DJ and maybe the MC. But the way it got introduced to Europe was that it was all happening together, mm. you know? So right. the European vision and I always ask that, myself that question of why Europe is so like tight knit with hip hop movement being all these disciplines together. Because when we were introduced, we were saw all these people together on stage. And we were like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> you know, you're a guy rapping, a DJ here, a guy in the back painting. And then they, would, they had the double Dutch girls from the McDonald's competition that there were also you know, there at the same time. So you have all this happening. And that was another apocalypse to me. Like my mom also, she was like, wow, this is amazing. Look at this. Look at these young 
kids from the hood creating. This is wow. This, she just had no words. And there was what, maybe 200 people there? The show? And that was like the, the jump off, I would say. So, you, so and take me out. You're, you're this, you, you, you talked about um, knowing Lottie Dottie and transcribing the lyrics for, you know, for your mom. But take me out. You're, you're, you're at a show like that. And, right. And you see, you see all the elements coming at work, you know, come, working together and also working separately. What is the, the element that you're, I think you're instantly drawn to and that you're like, I want to do that. I don't care if there's a career in that or whatever I want to be. I want to, I want to, I want to do that too. That's my form of expression. You know what? I think it was now that you asked and that's a very good question because I okay. never really thought about why that moment may be really the turning point is it's kind of the same feeling. I don't know if you've ever been to Brazil. No, I want to. <laughs> when you go to Brazil, you know, let me know. And I'll link you up with a couple samba schools to go oh, visit. Oh, dope! Nice. Because it's that, it's that impact, that sound, that sonic impact. That you know, you walk in this what you call the quadra, which is this you know gymnasium where they rehearse, and when the drum, the percussion starts up, your heart just kind of stops, like, oh! and it's that feeling I remember having when the sound came up and you heard like, you know, this dude, like, what is he doing with his hands on this turntable? Mm. What is he doing? And you hear, duh, 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 and a huge beat would come in and just, and then this guy's just rapping over it. You're like, wow, it's just the sonic impact I think was, cause you know, I'm originally, my musical introduction is really drums. That's mm. where I start. You know, I start as a drummer and play on records as a young kid going to the turntable and playing on Bob Dylan and Bob Marley and, you know, The Doors and Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and people like that. Mm. So, you know, I was always already into sound kind of, you would say, as a young kid because right. my parents played a lot of music. So I think when we were in this, and this happened in like a, a circus dome. It was a dome event over, I think, a couple nights. And the sound, yeah, the impact was just like, oh, shit so i think later it it still carried on and carried over and said hmm, yeah you want to do this mm. so 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 you know you look at who have you worked with and you, you know you, 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 you just you know you're telling your story and so how, do, how does how do, how do you go from someone born in paris and to living in new york but then also to becoming connected and working with, I mean, such great legends as Daddy-O from Daddy-O, you know, Sadat X, Everlast. I mean, how did those connections come to be? I mean, did you did you seek them out? Did they seek you out? Um, was it kind of like, you know, your, a bucket list type thing for you? Well, I actually had some of it happened. Well, the, the Daddy-O connection happened when um, in 1990, my mom and I set out to write a book that we call Freestyle. And the reason why she was really the one who was spearheading this is that at the university where she was teaching, there was another person who was interested in hip hop history and, the, and what, it was, what was happening. So this person, another professor, had also a lot of power at the school, and he kind of like instigated and you know, learned what hip hop was and kind of tried to tell people that he was the one who brought it. 
to the school. And that really pissed her off because she had been working many, many years on this teaching method and using mm-hmm. the culture that she felt that, you know, this guy was trying to like, I don't know how the word would be, but he was just trying to take it over. She wasn't happy about that. So she wanted the recognition. She said to my, and she had started, interestingly enough, doing interviews for her, for her classes that she would play for her students. So she already had Curtis Blow. She already had Grandmaster Flash. She had The Last Poets. Wow. She had DST. You know, and she would catch these people when they would come to Paris at shows and different events. So, and there was that whole hip hop event that she got invited to because of the, you know, the sponsors was like a, you know, kind of a source or hip hop.com kind of, you know, entity. So she was linked to them, blah, 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 did those interviews. And then she said to me, she's like, Sebastian, I got four or five interviews. Why don't we do a book? Because, you know, right now the kids are complaining, the hip, the young hip hop kids are complaining that. It's too much analysis because, you know, in France, people like to analyze and talk a lot. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of times they don't let the people who make the music talk. Hmm. So we said, you know what? Why don't we do a book and we interview the people, the actors, and let them speak about what they're doing. So that's really what we set out, which is a book of interviews. And in, I guess, must have been 91, you know, I was doing a lot of back and forth at the time doing interviews in New York. And a lot of, you know, people helping me out. And I have to shout out Dream Hampton, who really, really helped out. Uh, you know, she linked me up with so many different people that led to other people. And one of those people was Daddy-O. And Daddy-O, you know, when we interviewed and I know you talked to him, man, he'd tell you you got a half hour and then four hours later you're still talking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because nice. Daddy-O... Daddy got stories, you know, yeah. uh, and even back then, you know, this is 91. So it's not like Stetsa Sang is going on for 30 years. You know? <laughs> right, right. They've been going on for like maybe 10 years, maybe even a little, even a little less. Right. So, you know, he was at a studio, which is where, actually where I live, near where I live now in Fort Greene, uh, what he called Bed-Stuy still at the time. Um, and it was called Okie Doke Studios. And he was his manager was his brother Kedar, you know, Massenberg. Um, so I remember going to interview Daddy and then we we ended up talking for like four hours about all kinds of stuff. It wasn't just an interview anymore. It was just like talking about life and mm-hmm. politics and he was curious about Europe because you know he had done he was one of the first American hip hop producers, artists to work with a European group. You know, he produced that uh, duet called The Cookie Crew. And The Cookie the cookie Crew assigned to Polygram uh, UK. So I remember that because I talked to him about that. And he was like, you know The Cookie Crew? How do you know them? I was like, oh, I'm from France originally. He's like, word up, Bob. So, you know, he was interested in the, the global aspect of the hip hop thing. You know, he, him and Chuck are like big on that, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we talked and at the end I played, I was like, like daddy do you mind you know i produce like i'm you know i just started a couple years ago but i i got a couple tracks i'd love to play for you he's like hell yeah he's like let's go in the studio so we're in the studio play tape and he's bopping his head and i'm like oh already like kind of trembling he's bopping his head like oh shit and he turns around he's like you did this i was like yeah he's like this shit is dope man That's he's, awesome. like, well, he's like why don't you come and see me when you come back to the u.s 
I was like, where are you? He said, yeah, just come see me. You probably have done more. I want to hear more. I was like, where are you? He said, yeah, come see me. So the following year, I started college up at Purchase University up in up in White Plains. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't have to tell me twice to call, especially a legend like that, one of my favorite rappers at the time. You know, call me? Hell yeah, I'm going to call you. So I, that's what I did. And we actually, you know, I was working with a, I had a, a music partner at the time, my man LaVive, L-A-V-I-V-E, and we, we signed with Daddy O's production company. You know, and we, yeah, and we, we, I mean, we were two white kids, you know, it's like, at the time, Four Green was very, was very rough. So you can imagine these two white French kids walking into that studio, you know, you cross paths with Big, you cross paths with Junior Mafia Cats, you cross paths with, at the time, his uh, his brother Kedar was managing Freestyle Fellowship. And they were the, I remember we got to work on the track with Freestyle Fellowship. We had no idea who they were. But we heard, we heard this shit and we were like, wow, these guys are way, ad, way, ad, way advanced in what they're doing. I imagine it was, it was, I imagine it was probably helpful you didn't know who they were. I mean... In terms of uh, in terms of how you approach a approach a working session, does that I mean is it is it help is it helpful to know who people are? Or not know? I know actually at the time we really didn't care. Yeah. We were so eager to work with whoever, and then you had these rappers from the West Coast, you know, cool dudes, but a total different out there out, you know, I would say spaces the place sunrod type type hip hop, but just super creative. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. So going into that like first studio session with uh, with Daddy O, I mean, what did you? What were your? Did you have expectations, or did you not? You know, were you just like we're just going to go in and you know, just complete something? Uh, I mean, did you no expectations. Yeah. Super like like a child in a candy store. Mm. You know, like okay, I'm going into a session with Daddy O from Sets of Sonic. All right, let's let's put that in perspective. Okay. Because <laughs> you know I'm 20 at that time I'm 20 I'm 21 years old you know I just turned 20 and I just started college and I just got signed to a production company a major production company and with a chance to work with some serious people mm. so I'm you know to me that's crazy right, it's, right. it's 
like a dream come true. He's like, wow, okay, I came to the U.S. and this is happening. Wow, right. it's like a whole other ball game than what I was doing in France. Like this is like life changing kind of shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Right. So, <laughs> so from there, you know, Daddy O uh, was like really the introduction. And then the whole college thing, you know, went down. So I worked as a, you know, that night also did help work uh, relationship was like I was, you know, um, was a programming director for events at this school for like two, three years. And I was also a, you know, radio, college radio director, you know, for this, for this, the station director for urban music. So I was developing relationships with labels as far as like being, you know, the radio guy, but also since I was booking, I was building relationships with managers and agents. So when it came, for example, in 94, we invited KRS to the college. And since I had interviewed Chris and my mom had invited him to her school, to her university in Paris back in 91, we already had established those relationships, you know, with his manager and with Chris himself. So he kind of knew who we were. So when I called for college, oh, he Chris, blah, blah, for a show, you know, he did a show for half price of what he would charge or a third of the price because we were a smaller school and also he knew who I was, you know. So that was kind of a highlight because I was 23 years old and the show happened on the night of my birthday. I made it, I made it happen that way. <laughs> That's awesome. it, actually, it really worked out. And the crazy shit was that KRS said my name in his freestyle. Wow. So that was just like, you know, another moment of pure candy store. Like, oh, yo, you heard that? You heard? <laughs> yo, KRS said my name in the freestyle. You heard it, right? right. Like, who was recording that? Who had <laughs> exactly. tape? Come on. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so that helped me build and then finish college. I enter, I got an internship at Def Jam with Dante mm -hmm. Ross. Wow, nice. And shout out to my man Dagan who put Matt, put me on. And that situation really led, opened the doors to, because Dante at the time was managing Sadat, who was signed to Loud. So I got to know Sadat. I booked Sadat a couple gigs. And we already, we did, we did a record with him, with Get Open. And then that led, you know, we built rapport. And we did a few other sessions, you know, after that with Sadat. And then the Everlast situation also came from there because Everlast, you know, Dante comes to me one day, this is might be early 97 at the office and is like, Siba, um, you got some beats? I'm like, yeah, always. It's like, uh, you want to submit some stuff for Everlast from House of Pain? I'm like looking at him, do I want to? Like, <laughs> hell yeah. <laughs> Everlast, House of yeah. Pain, yeah. It's like, you know, he's doing this record, but it's, it's independent. I mean, it's a it's a solo record. He's no longer with House of Pain, you know. Uh, but I'm going to executive produce the record, and I want I I you know I'd I'd love for you to submit some stuff. So, I was like, am I one of the first ones you're asking? He's like, yeah. I was like, wow, that's an honor, bro. That's amazing. Yeah, I was. It was like when you're looking, you know, you're at a uh, ANR death uh, office, where on the wall, you have tapes from Primo. Q-Tip, from Law Finesse, from Pete Rock, you name them. And one of the hottest tapes, you know, as a side note, was Showbiz. Showbiz Beats, 96, are just bananas. 
I mean, I really say it. Out of all the ones I named, he had the top tape. I mean, a lot of these, back then, these producers, they didn't put everything on the tapes because they were worried that somebody would jack it or have the idea. Or <laughs> It was so, as you know, it was really, it wasn't cutthroat, but you were worried about who would use your sample. <laughs> so I remember that, and then I submitted some, some tracks, and then Dante called me up one day, or I remember exactly how I went down. It was like, Simba, ever last like some of your shit, like, we're going to go to the studio and demo some of this stuff. So I was, again, that's another, as I call it, candy store moment. Wow, all right. Damn, we get to work with Everlast. House of Pain. Oh, shit. Right. And what's funny is that in my book, Freestyle, he, he got interviewed, but that's the only interview that me and my mom did not do. Oh, interesting. So did? when I talked to him about it, it was like a friend who had done it for, for that, because we weren't available that day. So someone else went to do it. And I remember, so you remember this interview? He's like, man, let me tell you, Sibyl, that uh, a lot of that era is a total blur. <laughs> we drank so much. We took so much drugs. We barely slept. We did shows. We did this, that. A lot of this stuff is a blur. So, so that, you know, that, that situation, uh, you know, Everlast came, came around and that was like, you know, what probably my, I say my claim to fame, claim to fame moment, because you know that I had no expectations on that record. Like I didn't know what was going to happen. I knew it was House of Pain Everlast, so I was like, "There's a chance that this could do big numbers." But again, you know, he was solo. He didn't really know what he was doing because you know originally, a lot of people don't know this about that record, the Whitey Ford sings the blues, but it was supposed to be like a Puff Daddy type record. Because at the time, if you remember, the production styles were like you were jacking 80 songs, putting a beat on it, you know, and yeah. then put a little chorus on it, and then here's your song, right? Right, right. So I remember, and we talked about Everlast about releasing this because I still have the tape of it, the dat, is that the first song he recorded was Ends. And Ends, the song, was on a Eurythmic sample, uh, Here Comes the Rain Again, a track I did. So this track was that, you know, so, and it had D.V. Elias Christ on it, singing the hook, singing the the, the Houdini hook. And how many others have them? Let mm-hmm. me, I want my ends. And then the turning, the turning point was one day Dante calls me this, like we, he had recorded two songs, maybe two songs in the album, right? Dante calls me like, yo, Sibba, come come to the studio. Or, yeah, something like that. He was, come to the studio. And I get to the studio, and he's like, Sibba, listen to this. And Everlast pops out what it's like. I could, him playing guitar, acapella. I was like on my ass, like, what? You sing like this? He was like, yeah, man, been a minute, but I just haven't sung out, you know, out, out to people. I was like, yo, that's fucking hot. So Dante looks at me, he's like, Sibba, I think we're going to change direction on the record. (laughs) (laughs) So it became this kind of folky, hip-hop, rock, you know, record, but they still kept one of my tracks, Painkillers, which was to him, you know, a very important record because that's what he went through right before he, you know, while he was recording, when they were mastering, he had a heart attack. And then he had his, you know, this motorcycle accident where he was on on painkillers 
and the song she wrote was kind of one of the days when he, you know, hallucinating while, uh, you know, on the effects of the, <laughs> of the painkiller itself. <laughs> So that's, you know, I guess I would say I got lucky that they kept that track and uh, became part of that triple platinum record, you know, and I'm thankful up to today, you know, always thankful. I hop out my car, step into the lobby, everybody's on the floor, it's a motherfucking robbery, this shit's in progress, I can feel the stress, I want to silently to God how I get in this mess, they tell me to freeze and get down on my knees, between my jewels and my cash, I'm only 35. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. Uh, so, I, you know, I hear you talking, and then I... And I um... And I and I want I want to and I, and I think about the uh, the record uh, love off of the uh, Get Open album uh, Front and Center, mm-hmm. and it's a you know it's a track that you know essentially what the title is it's about like doing what you love no matter what the noise might be from the crowd that is trying to take over your creative space right. Mm-hmm. Um, what are and, and you obviously speak from 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 this you know from from, from someone who loves what they do and 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 has you know created incredible music with incredible people um for you what have been what has been the advantages and even the disadvantages of 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 of, for an artist for you for yourself of of creating something purely purely out of love i mean has there ever been times where maybe you know you love something so much that there was you you just kind of you had the blinders on and people were trying to tell you something and you just didn't listen you, you could say that, you know, I, I feel sometimes that I look back and I say, at the time, if I, you know, was more, I wasn't even a question about loving what you do, but more like a business minded, like people love what they do, but then they step back and say, okay, how am I going to monetize this, what I love and to, you know, and I think back then I was very young at the way I looked at things and I... 
I mean, you know, I'm not a business-minded guy to start. You know, my family's not business-minded people. They're not entrepreneurs or, you know, in a way where they invest money into something. They more invest their creatives into something, you know, like that equal out to monetize. So to me, it was like, the, I would say the pure, my, the purity of what I, you know, my passion of making hip hop kind of like blinded me to not focusing more on the entrepreneurial aspect of things where, you know, some people were like, damn, man, you should have shot the shit out of that. You know, when you did that Everlast record and got all these other placements, I mean, shit was happening, but I explained to people, for example, that record, the, pro the problem for me was that what blew up was the rock, the rock songs. So his rock crowd really, you know, gathered around him. His hip hop people liked it, but some people got, you know, got turned off by it because it wasn't jump around. It wasn't, you know... Uh, Uh, boom, shalak, lock, boom anymore, right? <laughs> so there's those kids who wanted that. So, you know, to me, that's the kind of thing, but it's never, it's, I was thinking the only thing that may have stopped me from, you know, really doing what I love and that is just really the business, you know, of like having to refocus and maybe kind of change what you're, creating so you please more people you know that kind of vibe right like as a producer oh i need to find that formula so you know i can bring these checks and then because you know that's why everyone thinks and like oh and then i'll do i'll do a project that i really want to do you know there's some people think that way but then you know they get into the whole formula thing and if it works out they're gonna like work that you know i think of wyclef once he found that formula he's like man i'm running with this till the end right right sure you know <laughs> <laughs> Um, you've, you've worked with obviously like uh, not just English speaking artists but also French speaking artists and other artists um, mm -hmm. what is and this is not a, this is not this is not a question that's supposed to be English English, English artists versus French artists but what do uh, what is what, what do you feel like um, an English speaking artist kind of brings into a studio that you kind of wished a French-speaking artist brought into the studio? And then what do you think a French-speaking artist brings into the studio that you kind of wished an English-speaking artist brought into the studio? Hmm, good question. Um, what I think, you know, if you talk about hip-hop, I think uh, what I saw early on was, I guess maybe because it was early on, but this, the, the U.S. the U.S. hip-hop mentality or the U.S. artist mentality is much more There's a lot more confidence, I would say. Um, and there's also, you know, you deal with a lot of people that have a lot more background, musically speaking, because see, the thing problem is, I won't say it's a problem, but thing in France, is a lot of young people, our generation, may not have had, you know, musical upbringing, like a person... You know, for example, like a young African-American man or woman living in Alabama mm. is going to hear some blues, going to hear some jazz, going to hear some funk. And then if they hear mystical, if they hear Master P or, you know, they're going to hear, they might hear that drumline vibe, right. you know, happening. So it's, it's related, but we don't have that in France. So you may have even an African, you know, a uh, young man or young woman from African descent, or even if she's from Guadeloupe, which is like the main, you know, colonies you know of uh of people of uh you know african descent right 
those kids did not have that kind some of them may have had that upbringing but musically speaking they did not listen to the same thing so the way they approach music you know i think is a whole other way you know especially hip-hop i mean what's great for hip-hop with hip-hop what i think it did to the whole world aside from the u.s is it educated young people to music they never listened to before you know from all the people digging you know so of course you listen to that to all these records that you may obscure records that you should never you know think of touching before because you're trying to find a sample so you know that's a whole other conversation but so i think that's what you know the u.s is just that confidence and it's also that that knowledge and background and reference to stuff that you, you know when you have a session or oh you know and so and so and that song you know when they're singing you know that part blah 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 when she's doing that and you know a little and that person yeah yeah i know what you say oh yeah okay you want that yeah all right cool and then you go back in boom yeah. you won't have those references in france but what you may have you know is um i don't know it's a, it's a different it's a different approach in the studio in in France is less, it's more clinical, you know, like with recording engineers and things like that. I felt, you know, and I don't, I hope they don't read this and take this the wrong way, but sometimes felt a little more stiff mm. because also engineers, you know, in France, probably not now because things have changed and a lot of young people have gotten to the game, but back in the late eighties, early nineties, engineers like looked at hip hop, artists as like you know like losers like oh you guys are not musicians like you guys are the guys that are sampling stealing stuff from people and you know and, and also not being uh a lot of them not being you know uh how would you say uh collaborative in a session you know kind of like hating on the situation like oh damn i gotta do this session now with these with with these losers like get this over with yeah trying to get over with is the hour yeah. up yet type thing exactly yeah i mean early on when they didn't see, you know, the dollars or the euros. Now that they see the euros, like they'll do the sessions, no problem. <laughs> right. You know, because it is, I mean, it is what's twenty percent market share, if not more, in France, and that's and that's huge. You know, it's still it's still the number one music aside from just you know French chanson as they call it. You know, it's like, I mean, after I think after it might be this, it's the second after maybe UK. I mean, I mean, not even because UK doesn't produce that much hip- of their own hip hop. It's uh, it's France's number one after the US, you know, still as a market. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you mentioned, uh, kind of mentioned a, a quote unquote American, you know, music session um, with, you know, talking about different genres of music. And then you think about your group, Get Open, and, and you know, you three are like from these, have seems like very diverse musical backgrounds and musical families. Um, can you take us into just, you know, even if you want to pick a song uh, that you guys created and kind of take us into a, I don't know, a creative session uh, briefly of like the, the, the beats coming together and the music coming together and, and, and the lyrics coming together and kind of how does that work with you guys? Well, just let's take this one song, which actually, actually I'm going to repost today because the George Floyd uh, trial started yesterday. Uh, All right. This song that was actually the first single we called Tale of the Tape. Mm-hmm. And Tale of the Tape came around that we wrote, I think we wrote our verses separately. 
because that's what happens. Like we usually have we have weekly sessions. We'll play beats, and we'll choose some instrumentals we like, and then we'll have a I won't say silent moment, but we'll just play the track over 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 over, over again, and then. See what we come up with within a short amount of time. And if something creative, you know, uh, comes up, then. We'll build on that. So I think at the moment we we all started writing verses, and Vaughn Vaughn Meister is actually the guy in the group that's I would say probably and to me, and you know I wish he would do more of this work, but one of the best core you know chorus writers, uh, hook writers that I know. So I mean he gets inspired. He can be so quick with it. And I don't remember how he just because what he does, and you know I know a lot of other rappers do this as well, is you kind of hum something and you have the rhythm. So you go, huh? It's a you know, kind of like you're doing a percussive pattern in your head that you think will work with what's happening, you know, musically and rhythmically with the song. So he was kind of humming some, and then. And he's from Caribbean. But his his background, you know, is a lot of reggae, a lot of dance hall, soca, roots, ska stuff. And then he was just he was just humming. And then he's like, he's like, oh, I got it. Tailor the tape. Just all of a sudden, I'm like, how'd you come up with that? He's like, oh well, you know, tailor the tape. The tape never lies. You know, that's the you know that's a term for boxing. But the tape in our situation is the video. That doesn't lie, you know. It's there. It's recorded. It's boom. It's in his. It's in, ingrained in history. Uh, and and it went from there. And then you know, I grew up in New York. What thirteen, fourteen, eighty four, eighty five. And the guy on you know, big sports fan. And the guy on TV that my father loved to watch. At the news with Channel Two News was Warner Wolf. Yeah, one of the sports. <laughs> there you go. You see, so you're you true Yorker. You you know the deal. If you let's know Warner to, Wolf, let's go to the video tape. There you go. So <laughs> we're looking at each other, and I said, I think it was all me or some or maybe Campbell said, we need to use Warner Wolf. So we went in, you know, and we got a little snippet where he said, let's go to the videotape. <laughs> and uh, so you know, it just all worked out after that, you know, and. Just of each person finishing out their rhymes, but you know it's kind of the uh, the the process that usually happens. How you know how we work? We we don't we rarely come up with stuff. We write on our own, but hooks and concepts usually happen when we're together. Unlike maybe some other groups that find stuff on their own and then when they come back, they go, "I got this idea," or give somebody a call or email, whatever. You see it in detail, in detail. You see it in detail. I mean, do you feel that, you know, obviously, like, 
the tale of the tape is, like you said, commentary on, on, on Floyd and, and, and obviously the social injustices and police brutality. Do, uh, do you do you feel hip hop is moving kind of back to I don't know back towards that moment of speaking being more quote unquote political or speaking out more against social injustices? Uh, or do you think they kind of we we lost that in a way and we should get back to it? Well, I think it's the second part of your answer where I think is there was a, I had a sense that we may have had a chance for it to really uh, pick up because, you know, P came back with a record that people were listening to, you know, finally after not listening, really paying attention to P for a long time. Then you have, you know, the baby had his song with Roddy Rich. Then you would have, you know, a couple other tunes. Uh, there's that Toby Cat. I forgot. I can't pronounce his last name. But so there, there, there were some records that when we came out, because see, we didn't have, we never planned for our record to come out and to be called front and center to be come to come out last year. We didn't really have plans of when we put out a record. It's the the filmmaker, the guy who did the Where I'm From video, Pascal Tissot, who called me because we had recorded, we had shot that video a year before, the summer before. And he's like, oh, what are you going to do with the video? When are you coming out with your record? So I was like, oh, I'm not sure yet. He's like, well, you know, it's getting, some, it's going to be coming close to a year, uh, you know, in a couple of months. You guys might want to think of putting it out. So yeah, but we don't have a record out yet. We have a concept. So that's when I sat back and said, hmm, Maybe it's a good time because we have so many, we have so many political records, songs on the album. I'm like, this is the time. You know, we're going through Trump, we're going through this, we're going through that. Why not? Let's let's put this out. I mean, it's COVID. It's it may be not the most ideal time, but people at home, people are at home listening, watching. So maybe it is a good time. And that's when we decided to move forward with it. And then all this happened. You know, all these people had these records and. Wow, okay. Uh, Steve, I want to step back a little bit because uh, you know you're not just um, obviously you you do a lot of uh, you know writer producer, but you also uh, I think what's important is you you help curate this uh, exhibit in France uh, in 2017-2018, which is featured photographs from uh, the golden age of and artifacts from the uh, golden age of hip hop. Um, what? Um, well, one, I, you know, I, I know this is I'll probably asked all the time, but why, why that era for you? But two, and you, you did touch on it, so you know, expand a little bit. But two, um, who do you think uh, at first, and you know, obviously it's changed with more French hip hop artists coming out. But who, 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 who were who were those American artists or artists that you think had maybe the biggest impact on? Um, people of your generation or maybe a little younger as well in France in uh, in France um, I'd say the the artists who had the most impact I would say hip hop wise is Public Enemy Public Enemy impact towards that early 90s generation is unequaled in France uh for various reasons, because they came and played a small club, tiny club, like with 
you know, I, f- I forgot. I think Terminator X couldn't come, so Red Alert came as their, as their DJ. It's not a bad replacement. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> and they played a tiny club in that. There's some photos in the exhibit that we had of that show. We actually had the poster as well of that show at the exhibit. Um, and so that's that's the artist, I would say. Run DMC had major impact, but Public Enemy, I think, takes it uh, for various reasons. You know, uh, what a lot of people don't know is that I mean, I don't know in other countries, but in France, the first big, when uh, right after uh, Takes a Nation, well, I think it was a Fear of Black Planet came out, it's 91. When they came to France, they played like a major arena of 5,000 people, and no rap group had ever played that, that, kind, that size arena in France, right? And I remember, and I had also this in the exhibit, the headline of like, you know, a... Uh, how would you how would you compare it? It wouldn't be Wall Street Journal because they're now they're you know Bezos Bezos kind of owns it, but maybe at the time when they were maybe like a New York Post more right wing, you know, would have like a headline, you know, like a Public Enemy in Madison Square Garden, and here comes the 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 racists are playing Madison Square Garden tonight. Be careful, oh, right. white people. Right. Be careful. You imagine that kind of headline? Yeah, that's amazing. I was like, what? And this is like headline of, uh, of uh, Figaro uh, newspaper, which is not extreme right wing, but right wing conservative. I was like, everybody was shocked. Like, what? Public enemies getting front line? I mean, headline? Like, what? So, you know, of course, everybody wanted to go see who public enemy was. Because you, your media, you know, could create that kind of buzz. And, you know, then they played and they toured Europe. I mean, they did a lot of shows in France, but their impact was very, you know, and I think it's still felt, although a lot of kids don't know, but a lot of that, you know, influenced a lot of kids to write meaningful songs, you know. So there, the whole 90s hip hop in France is very, there's a lot of content, you know, there's very little bling bling, very little ego tripping. You know, you had to be really nice to get to get over an ego tripping in France at the time. <laughs> See, you, you talked. To, sorry, you you you, you, did, you talk. You did talk about a uh, um, a language, right? In, in terms of uh, you were able to uh, go back and you know, translate the lyrics, right, for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but obviously, you you can't you couldn't you can't do that for everyone in France, right? Right. Uh, can you tell me about what in terms of public enemy, for example, like what um, besides if you besides knowing what the lyrics are what what is it that also stands out to uh to the youth about them um and i asked that because i remember years ago i had the opportunity i was in japan i had the opportunity to see uh, province of rage uh, mm. perform and mm-hmm. you know incredible show um and you know and 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 a lot of people have showed up but i imagine there is this loss you know lost in translation right right uh so what is it about, uh, if, you, if you take away the, I guess, take away the, the meaning behind the lyrics, what is it about uh, someone like Public Enemy that would, would stand out to? Well, see, it's actually a question that you ask brings an, an answer that I always want to talk about. And it's the underrated bomb squad. The bomb squad to me is with Molly Mall and Primo and RZA, 
probably the most prolific and organized noise, excuse me, the most prolific production crew ever assembled. Because when you listen to what's happening musically, as my mom called it, the soundtrack behind Chuck D is just is just unequaled, unparalleled as far as like the urban warfare that's happening in that music and the best example. And that was my mom, probably her favorite song, although she like she loved 911 as a joke. She was a Terra Dome fan. Terra Dome would just like get us so excited and she would just sing that shit out. Like, I got so much. You hear, you know, a 65-year-old woman singing Chuck D lyrics and being excited about it. You know, I got so much trouble. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Mom, what's up? She's like, oh. I want to play the, I want to play P. You know, it kind of became her anthem song to when people, you know, next door or neighbors make noise, she would just turn the terror dome on and that would just shut everybody up <laughs> because that's a, that's a pretty, you know, heavy, I won't say violent is not the word. It's an aggressive song, but I mean, it's that aggression, you know, that you, and that's really what people felt with public enemies musically. And then Chuck and Flav going back and forth and that, you know, yin and yang thing happening on stage with the S ones and Griff, just that energy was just, even if you didn't understand what they said, you know, rhythmically, if you heard that, you hear, he had Chuck rapping, you know, who, and back then Chuck was doing triplets, you know, like these kids are doing triplets and that trap rapping. You know, you solo no rope they beat it, and he really, you know, so there's that that factor really, I think, you know, uh touched people was the music, you know, behind that, you know, forget the James Brown samples, because a lot of people didn't even hear the James Brown samples until they started analyzing what was there, because there was so much going on. You know? So yeah, public enemy major impact, but also to answer your question, because you're asking why at that exhibit, the golden era was chosen. It was chosen because, well, first of all, that's what the the museum's theme was. They wanted to, the director of the museum wanted to touch up on the early stages of hip hop and how it, how it began and historically. And, you know, and also, also, uh, I would say, uh, as far as urbanism is concerned, how, it came about in the city, you know, and why the Bronx became the Bronx because of the Cross Bronx Expressway and construction, which led to African-American Latino being like, you know, caged in an area and the kids not do, not having nothing to do. So one of them, you know, he come from Jamaica. He had the idea of putting these two turntables together and put some music on. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of, you know, that really... That fascinated this the director of the museum. So, you know, he came to me through a common friend because he knew I'd written this book, Freestyle. So he's like, oh, you probably have a good uh, foot in both countries. And that's what I need. I need somebody who's equal in France as in the U.S. Whereas, you know, the connection and the history with both worlds. So that's how that came about. And, you know, haven't done this book that really helped because a lot of the old, you know, old friends like Henry Schaufelnd and people like that, you know, automatically said, for you, Sibber? Come on, man. Of course. You know, that, that, that led to Joe Conzo and Martha 
Cooper to, you know, Ricky Powell. And then, you know, Prince Paul, for example, lending a couple pieces. Uh, you know, Janet Beckman, Jonathan Mannion, Jamel Shabazz. You know, a lot of the, Joel Conzo, a lot of the top photographers, the hip-hop photographers, you know, uh, participated. So that was a, that was a blessing. You know, it was whole a whole other world for me, but a lot of fun because I got to educate a lot of people about hip hop and history of it and where it came from and how it developed. That had no idea, you know. They people have no clue. I mean, I don't think people in the U.S. A lot of people in the U.S. also sometimes if they don't dig, don't know. But in France, they have no idea, and they don't search it out either. Right. Uh, so, Sina, I have uh, two more questions. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. No, thank uh, you, man. Appreciate talking to you. Um, if there was, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll let you pick your poison on this one. If there was a record, or even maybe a sample that was used in a record that you could have been either you wish you did, or could have been a fly on the wall in the studio while it was being made. Uh, do you have a record in mind or just because of like the sample that the person used in it that kind of blew you out of your, you know, blew you away? Oh, wow. That's, that's, that, 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 that's a tough one. Um, if it was, I mean, I'll, I'll put, I'll give, I'll give, I'll try to give two answers because one sample, a sample, I mean, I would have loved to be, as far as samples in a uh, in a Bob James session, just to hear, you know, uh, that process. Although, and nothing, no knock on not Bob James, but you know, when I listen to his records, I don't really listen to Bob James records. It's, to me, it's elevated music. You know, it's that smooth jazz. It's and when it was made, it was made for that. I don't think he thought about, <laughs> hey, these, these, these hip-hop kids are going to sample me in three years, right? <laughs> so there's that. But as far as favorite artists, if I could have been in the Stevie Wonder sessions for Songs in the Key of Life, Fly on the Wall, I would have been there. I would be a happy man. That's my favorite artist. A few years ago, I got to interview uh, Kwame, and he talked about... Uh seeing being like a five-year-old kid and, and his aunt and mom like brought him to uh, a stevie wonder show yeah and he was and he's like for a minute stopped looked around it's like oh i get it <laughs> like how amazing you know how amazing they were um there he was um and, and my final question is uh, is going back to your group um if you, you take the current album and uh kind of look at the tracks and, and the record and what you guys created is there a kind of your moment that's like, oh, wow, I can't believe we made that, or I can't believe that record came together. Uh, maybe one particular record on this track, on this on this album. Yeah, the song with that we did with the, the French group I Am, um, these are old friends, but we never, we never got to collab because when the group, our group was kind of like started to take off a little bit, we buzzing in like 97, they just... And I'd known them for like six years from being on like one of the big TV shows in France. Actually, my mom was invited to that show and 
it's tough to to to, to, to compare, but you know, they have, in France we have we have talk shows in prime time at 8 p.m. You know, kind of variety shows as they call them. The Mexican, if you look at Latino TV, you see a lot of that on Saturday nights. You know, Sabado Gigante. So you know they have all kinds of music, and so they had a show like that in France that kind of introduced hip hop to the entire to the masses, I would say. And it was in '91. And MC Solar was on that show. The group I Am was on that show, but a few other groups, and that introduced hip hop to the French masses. And my mom and I were invited, you know, uh, to that show. And me and my homie, we got to rap a little bit a cappella live on TV. With, you know, you had what, 20 million people watching. Um, so we met that group I Am then. So we always kept in touch, you know, and then in 96, they blew up. Like when they say blew up, they sold like a million records. I mean, France, when you sell a million records, a million records, like you go diamond. It's almost like if you sold 10 million here, you know? Uh, so they were like massive, massive. And we always said, oh, we're going to do a record together. And it was always tough to catch them because they were so busy. So that then this record came up, came around. And I said to myself, I was like, you know, I haven't done anything. These guys are probably home, sitting at home, not being able to tour. Maybe you could talk to them. Maybe they'd be down to do this. So I went in and I said, ah, well, I offered the track. And, you know, these these guys, these are old, these are old school guys like, like us. So, you know, if you talk to a hip hop artist, like a guy like Daddy or today or Chuck, right? These guys are pretty set in their ways and the way they make records or the way they make music, right? It's, it's funny I say that, but they're just like jazz musicians. I'm heavy into jazz, right? And I've, I play drums, I, you know, jazz musicians. That's the guys who brought me up. My mom was heavy into that world. So I have a lot of friends and I play with some cats. And old jazz musicians are just like old school hip hop cats. They're just set in their ways. They don't want to, you know, when in the 80s, my mom used to talk to these jazz cats about hip hop. Like, ah, man, what's that shit music, man? Ah, <laughs> yeah, music. You know, they were saying that. 10 years later, they're looking at my mom like she's like, you know, a visionary because she saw it. And they're like, you were right, does the mom. You were right. And, but they were still. It'd be tough to get them to, to play on a rap on a hip hop record, you know what I'm saying? Because of that reluctance, and I feel that jazz cats, I mean hip hop cats today, the older ones, are exactly the same. They're not just going to record on anything, and they're not just going to do this. And they have their ways they want to do it, you know how they go to the studio and their little routine. So with these French dudes, I had to think of that. I can't just approach them like, "Oh, fellas, get on the track. Yo, here's the track." No, no, no. You got to approach it a certain way. Okay, these dudes, they operate this way. And, you know, so it's it's just this approach that I think, you know, that was that was uh, was important. And also the type of record, because they, these guys are not going to rap on just any instrumental because Siba asked them to, you know, and they wanted their friends, so they're going to do me a favor. No, so we don't, things don't operate that way, you know, when you create. It's like you got to be, you know, you got to have a green light. It's like, yeah, I like this instrumental, or I like the top of their song. Yeah, I could do this. And that all worked out. And to me, that was an accomplishment because they're a major group. 
you know, to get them to record like this on a record on the fly, like kind of fast, you know, with a two week kind of deadline was like to me an, an accomplishment, knowing how busy and, you know, how they could not have the time or, you know, maybe not inspired at the moment. Who knows? Awesome. So it's uh, in my life. That's the song. Actually, it's the next song I'm going to work on visuals about. So, Siva uh, Jiva from uh, Get Open. Uh, man, dude, it's, thank you so much for taking the time to. Uh, no, to thank you, Tim, man. It's been a pleasure to, to conversate with you, man. Big city making money is the vendetta. My pleasure, live the manifest to the letter. Oh, error outperforming because it's made better. Yeah, yo, handcrafted, telemade, yo, artisanal. Seasons, vets, pay dues, yeah, professional. Satisfaction guaranteed, stay exceptional. Gritty and white tracks, we keep blessing you, impressing you. Been like that since the get now. Well equipped, focus, we ready, set now. Lovers who say the current sentiment. What about climate change, the environment? Stay positive, oh, it's a hip-hop. Culture much appreciated before it went pop. Before it gained stock, it oversaw rock. On that street block, globally it won't stop. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.